Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Shabbat Shalom. I'm Monty Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries, and this is our Arab Shabbat service, the beginning of Sabbath service. We want to welcome you to B'nai Shalom here, and we want to thank you for spending some time this evening or this weekend and uh, joining us by way of the Internet and the broadcast to be part of the fellowship. Uh, you are part of a, a very large assembly of brethren all around the world that are getting together to uh, focus on what the Torah has to say for the Sabbath and to stop and remember to keep the Sabbath holy. I want to make a little bit of a shout out to some of the folks that have been sending us notes from where they're at. Some of the folks that are in Australia and New Zealand and South Africa and a lot of different places. Forgive me if I don't mention every country where you're from. It just blows my mind, you know, that uh, we can have this fellowship in this way. And I'm so pleased that you've been willing to join us. Let me give a couple of other quick announcements. We'll get Kiddush underway for you. Uh, as you know, we're approaching spring very soon, and we'll begin the new cycle of God's appointed times of his holidays. Um, Passover, of course, is coming up very, very soon. This weekend is, of course, Purim. That's always the signal we're a month away from Passover that will come early in April. And that starts the count of the Levitical feast. We are hosting a Shavuot Feast of Weeks conference. Uh, here it will occur on Memorial Day weekend. Uh, if you'd like to be a part of that, come and join other brethren from all around the country. Uh, go to our website, which is Shavuot Event, S-H-A-V-U-O-T Event.com. You can register on there to be a part of it. And then later on in the year, toward the fall, of course, the big event, the Feast of In Gathering, is our Tabernacles Event. That's the website. Go to Tabernacles Event, and it's not too late even now to start registering for it. Um, to be a part of that and plan this year to keep the Lord's feast. Amen. Uh, you may have also received a fundraiser letter from us. Uh, our studio that we have here has been operating for over 10 years, and we need to do an upgrade. It, the problem with this technology stuff, guys, is it, it's, it gets obsolete after a while. And to keep up with uh, the advances that are going on, uh, we need to upgrade our equipment to, to, to keep up with the technology. So we have a, a fundraiser event. We're trying to raise $40,000 for our new studio and the studio upgrades. If you have a mind to do that, please uh, contact the ministry, and you could help us out tremendously for that. All right, those are our announcements uh, for this week. Shabbat shalom to all of you, and let's get ready for Kiddush. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Please join our family as we welcome in the Sabbath. Don't blow the candles out again. Not this time. That's so smoky. Okay, you ready? Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu Malachim. 
Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by his commandments and has commanded us to be a light to the nations and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. Kiddush, the blessing over the cup. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Borei Pri Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Chamotzi, blessing over the bread. Chamotzi lechem min we give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atadonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Amen. Yeah, it's all right. Now for the blessing of our wives. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you on this Sabbath day, and I thank you for the wife that you've given me. I pray that you would bless her, even in the middle of the night when she sees about the ways of the household. I pray that you would bless her and encourage her as she teaches and educates the children. I thank you for the blessing that she is to me and to our home and to our family. And I pray that you would encourage her and strengthen her. Give her the product of her hands in everything that she does. And Father, I confess to her and to you that I love my wife. So Father, I pray that you would bless her with your very best blessing on this Sabbath day. We also lift up the widows and orphans, those without a husband or a father at this time as well. So we thank you, Lord, in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. Let us bless our sons. Protect.
and defend you. May His Spirit fill you with grace. May our family grow in happiness. So hear our Sabbath prayer. Now let us bless our daughters. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michmocha. Michmocha Baelim Adonai Michmocha Nedahar Bachodesh Nohora Techilot Altogether, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. 
Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. If it all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Baruch Shem Kivod Malchuto Le'olam Vayed Yeshua HaMashiach Hu Adonai Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be his name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, he is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Ochecha, Pachol Levavcha, Ufkol Nashicha, Uvakol Meodecha, Veheyu, Hadevarim Ha'ale Asher Nechime Zavcha, Hayom Alevavcha, Vashinantam Lavanecha, all together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. Oh, come behold the works of God, the nations at His feet. He breaks the bow and bends the spear and tells the wars to cease. Oh, mighty one of Israel, you are on our side. We walk by faith in God who burns the chariots with fire.
שנתן תורה תורה ברוך שנתן תורה תורה לעמו ישראל Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Exodus to chapter 30 and hold your finger there at verse 11 where our Torah portion will begin for this week. As you open the scripture, as always, I like to do the blessing before the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher barchabanu mikol haamim Venatan lanu et orato Baruch atah Adonai nonten haTorah Amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has chosen us from among all peoples and has given us your Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Our Torah portion for this week is entitled Kitisa, which uh, comes from the first phrase of our Torah portion where it asks, where the Lord is commanding Moses to take a census of the children of Israel. That phrase, when you take a census, literally in the Hebrew actually means when you elevate or when you lift up something. And that is a uh, theme of our entire Torah portion for this week. This Torah portion is chocked full of amazing spiritual parallels and things. I absolutely love this Torah portion. It's also the longest Torah portion in the book of Exodus. And so there's a lot of content here, a lot of exciting things, so hopefully I can just hit some of the highlights. But this theme of lifting up or elevating is prevalent throughout this entire Torah portion. Let me do a quick overview here. We're going to talk about the um, census that's taken for the children of Israel, and they're going to take up all of the silver, the ceremonial half shekel that represents each person. And that is how they're going to take a census. We also will have the creation of the bronze laver, also the holy anointing oil that was to be used in the service. And anointing oil is used to elevate the status of someone, and that's what you do when you anoint somebody. Their status is elevated. We have the instruction and the recipe for the creation of the incense that would be on the golden altar in the holy place. And that incense, when it was burned, was always lifted up before the Lord when it was burned. And so then we have... The instruction of God pointing out the specific names of the artisans of the tabernacle, Bezalel and Aholiav, and those men will be elevated amongst the community to be the artisans of the tabernacle, the ones who will create all of the textiles, that will create all of the articles, the ark, the menorah, the table of showbread, all the coverings, all the furnishings of the tabernacle will be created by these men, and they are elevated, lifted up amongst the community. We have the instruction, uh, the reiteration of the Sabbath law and the blessing that we do each week. The Veshamru comes from this Torah portion here at the end of chapter 31. And it talks about the Sabbath and how we are to rest. And it elevates the covenant that we have with God and the symbol of the Sabbath and what that represents. We then, this Torah portion is most famously known for having the story of the golden calf. After God has given Moses all of the instruction for the construction of the tabernacle, he goes back down into the camp. He hears what sounds like the sounds of war amongst the camp, and they have created a golden calf. And the children of Israel, 3,000 of the children of Israel, have created a golden calf and lifted it up 
and elevated it to be equal to God, and they worship it, and they represent that to be God, and obviously that was uh, a, an error on their part. But again, it's this theme of being lifted up and elevated that is the theme throughout our entire Torah portion. We then have the God speaking to Moses and saying that he's no longer going to be with the people. You can go into the promised land, but God will no longer go with them into the promised land. And Moses pleading before God that he would go with them. That they, It doesn't matter if they went into the promised land. If God is not with them, it, there would be no blessing in that. And so then God gives the 13 attributes of God to Moses. And then after this is done, they reaffirm the covenant. And then Moses, his face is then shining full of glory from this day onward. And so then Moses is elevated in a way. And the glory of the Lord that shines from his face puts Moses on a different level and elevates him again as the leader of the children of Israel. So this theme of lifting up and elevating is prevalent throughout. This entire Torah portion, and as I, as you can tell, there's many different uh, avenues in which we could teach this Torah portion. What I'd like to do is I'd like to hit just some of the highlights uh, that would be encouraging to you in your walk uh, for this particular week. Let's talk about this ransom that is taken, or this census that is taken uh, for the children of Israel. Let me go ahead and read here the start of our Torah portion here, verse 11 of chapter 30. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When you take the census of the children of Israel for their number, that every man shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord. And when you number them, that there there may be no plague among them when you number them. This is what everyone, everyone among those who are numbered shall give. A half shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. A shekel is 20 geras. The half shekel shall be an offering to the Lord. Everyone included among those who are numbered from 20 years old and above shall give an offering to the Lord. The rich shall not give more. The poor shall not give less than a half shekel. And when you give an offering to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves, and you shall take the atonement money of the children of Israel, you shall appoint it to the service of the tabernacle of meeting, that it may be a memorial for the children of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. Very interesting thing about this silver that is taken up. If you remember, when we were going to build the tabernacle, we were to take up an offering of anyone with a willing heart would give to the materials of the tabernacle so that the tabernacle could be made. All the gold, all the bronze, all of the various materials, the acacia wood, the gold, uh, the gold, the silver, um, the purple material, the blue material, the scarlet material, were all given and it was supposed to be of the heart. Well, it actually, it uh, turns out, that the silver of the tabernacle, all of the silver, was given because it was commanded that that silver be given. All of the other materials were given because someone had a willing heart to give those things to the tabernacle. But in here, it was commanded, they are to each man over the age of 20 to give a half shekel. And those are numbered for us in Exodus chapter 38, where it gives, and we'll go into that for next week's portion, the specific amount of silver that was given was the way that they numbered exactly how many sons of Israel were able to go to war over the age of 20. 
And that silver was used to create the various hooks of the tabernacle. Also, the sockets that the boards overlaid with gold that made the sanctuary, that the sockets of silver that were a talent each, that giant board would drop into a socket that would be the base foundational structure that would hold up all of the walls of the sanctuary. There's many different ways that we can, and areas we can uh, go into study on that, where the donation of the silver and what it represented, the atonement, and that it represented each of the men of Israel, that that is what built the foundation of the sanctuary. That the sanctuary where God dwells, that the stable uh, foundation of that of that dwelling was made because each man was represented and that to have a sanctuary, to have God dwelling among the people, he also has to have a kingdom of people and that each person, each man of Israel was represented in the tabernacle. So this silver also plays a role and always symbolizes atonement, covering. You pay a ransom. In fact, in our scripture, it says you shall give a ransom that this is to represent the children of Israel, that there is to not be any plague among them, that you, every person is counted, that you have to give something to the tabernacle. And this ransom of silver is what was used. That word ransom in the Hebrew is called kofir, which is very similar to the word um, kafar, which means covering, which is the root word in which we get Yom Kippur, atonement, so such as the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, that this is this was a covering. This was something that was to pay or substitute or protect someone or something. It's an, that's what atonement represents. It's very interesting when you have atonement. We it, atonement is something different than necessarily the forgiveness of sins. Atonement is something we all need that covers us for our sin. Atonement is something that it's like you can't have more or less atonement. You either have it or you don't. It's kind of like being pregnant. You can't be partially pregnant. You either are or you're not. And so atonement, so when you go into Yom Kippur, and maybe you had a rough year, and it's time, man, I, we're going into Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and I need to pray because, man, I need, I need a lot of atonement right now because I sinned greatly over the last year, and I need a lot of atonement. Well, it doesn't really work that way because you either have it or, or you don't. And that is represented here in this half shekel. Each man, poor or rich, gave the same amount. The same amount represents atonement. So every man has atonement, whether he has humble beginnings or whether he is of noble birth. He has atonement because of this payment. It's kind of equal weights and measures for each man and each person that they would have atonement. Also, interesting thing about that word kofir is also the exact same Hebrew word that's used back in Genesis 6 for the story of Noah's Ark that the pitch, the tar that was used to cover the ark and waterproof the ark, that that word for pitch is the same word. Again, it's this, it carries this theme of covering, of that this covers you to protect you, preserve you, preserve your life because your sin is capable of killing you. So you need atonement to cover you. Well, the Noah's Ark uh, certainly needed that pitch to protect it and preserve it so it could survive. Without that pitch, the ark would sink. And so you have to have this atonement, otherwise your life will be lost. Another thing that's interesting about this, they gave a half shekel per person. Why a half? Why wouldn't you just take one shekel per person? 
A shekel is still a very small amount of silver. And why wouldn't each person represent by one shekel? Number of shekels equals number of people. So, however, there's an interesting way to look at this. You have a half shekel. Obviously, if you ever have half of something, it's better to have a whole. It's better to have the whole thing rather than just half. And there's another story or another teaching that can come out of this, that each man, each person, that it's not about being an individual before God. That we are all better when we are together. It is not good for man to be alone. Man should always be together. That's why there's greater blessing, there's greater security, there's greater uh, uh, blessings that come with being in a community, in a fellowship with a friend, with a neighbor, with somebody there by your side to be with you. So the half shekel reminds us that, you know what, we're all individuals. However, it'd be better if I was with someone else so that together we could be one, together we could be whole. So there's another teaching there as to why it's a half shekel rather than a full shekel that represents each person. The instruction to create the bronze laver. This was a uh, furnishing of the tabernacle that contained water that was for the priests to wash themselves before the service of the tabernacle. And this is something that's very important that they were to wash their hands and their feet before they en- entered the sanctuary, which is very because God wants an order. He wants a purpose to all of these things. He doesn't want any unclean thing in his presence. So that's why we have this bronze laver. In Exodus 38, it's described that the bronze laver was made from the mirrors, the bronze mirrors that the women of Israel donated to create the bronze laver. This is something I've always loved in the movie The Ten Commandments by Cecil B. DeMille, that uh, in Egypt there was a big sheet of bronze hanging on the wall and they used it as a mirror. That's actually historically accurate that they used bronze as it being a very high sheen of bronze is what they used as mirrors back in those days. Our uh, portion and instruction continues with the creation of the anointing oil. And this was made, it's very interesting here in our scripture that we have an exact recipe of what was used to make the anointing oil. However, we are instructed uh, here in verse uh, 32 that it shall not be poured on man's flesh, nor shall you make any other like it according to its composition. It is holy and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it, Whoever puts any of it on an outsider shall be cut off from among your people. This is anointing oil that was instructed for specifically for the service of the tabernacle. Now, there's other anointing oils that many people have made, including our ministry here at Lion and Lamb, that we make an anointing oil that is a, of a different recipe than what is instructed here in our scripture. And so we believe that that is something we can anoint something with oil. However, we are not profaning the holy anointing oil that was made for the service of the tabernacle by not using the same recipe. I do have to warn those many here in the Messianic movement, modern Hebrew roots movement. Uh, there's a lot of women that like to use and buy essential oils that are used for all manners of uh, healing and de-stress and all kinds of things like that. Um, there is a company that makes a, an anointing an oil called Exodus 2 that uh, that oil that they create by that company is specifically trying to copy this oil. Now, I don't have a problem with essential oils. I do have a problem with that blend that somebody has compounded an oil similar to this one so I would counsel all of those that use essential oils to steer clear of that oil because I do not believe that it is appropriate for us to use that blend of oils 
So it is very fascinating here as we have this instruction, including also the instruction for the incense that was used. And it also, in the same way, it gives us the amounts of what was used for the incense, but it also says don't make anything exactly like this incense, otherwise you will be cut off from among your people. So we have a specific recipe for anointing oil for incense that is specific to the service of the tabernacle. In chapter 31 of our Torah portion, we then are introduced to um, my favorite uh, Bible character, arguably, a man by the name of Bezalel, who is called, who is given the spirit of God, the spirit of wisdom and understanding and knowledge, and he is the artisan of the tabernacle. The man, along with his friend, Aholiav, from the tribe of Dan, uh, Bezalel was from the tribe of Judah, that they were to come together and they were to construct the tabernacle. They had been blessed with a great amount of skill to do all of these things, any manner manner of textiles, any manner of uh, construction, of metallurgy, of uh, chemistry. Uh, They were the ones that mixed the anointing oil and the um, incense. And they were able to do and create all of these things. The amount of skill that they had is astounding. Um, In fact, I saw one commentary that said that it was amazing that these were people that came out of slavery, that a bunch of men who were brick makers, basically, in Egypt, that anyone who came out of Egypt would ever have this kind of skill to do that they had that to basically to sculpt, to hammer out the metal of the menorah, to sculpt the cherubim, to sew and weave all of the fabrics together that made up the tabernacle, that it's an amazing, it's a miracle, if you will, that anyone was able to do any of these things. And I believe that was exactly the case. Because it says God filled these men with the, his spirit, the spirit of God, spirit of knowledge, understanding. The same spirit of God, which I believe was that God used to create and form the world. The, the imagination that God has and the creativity that God has to create the world that we live in and, and everything that we see and sense and smell and touch and taste is an amazing thing that God has made. And I believe that it's that same creativity or that it's a hint of that, the power that God had to create the world. He bestowed upon these men that to given the Spirit of God to create all of these things. What an amazing blessing that would be. And I believe also, when in, in encouraging other brethren, that when you feel like the Spirit of God is within you, or that you're trying to do something and you feel like you were called to a purpose, that you have a skill or an ability or a day job that you work, and you believe that you have a destiny to do that task, to do that work, then pray that the Spirit of God be filled inside of you. And pray that he would pour out his spirit upon you. Because when the spirit of God is inside you, then you are able to do amazing things. Whatever God has called you to do, there's no doubt in anyone's mind that Bezalel was called and it was his blessing, his destiny to create these things. So we all should look for whatever it is our purpose in life to do and to serve and pray that God would put his spirit inside of us so that we can do that work and do that service, just like these men were able to do. Um, very interesting in the na- meaning of their names. Bezalel means in the shadow of God. And what he did when he created the tabernacle, he created a pattern and a shadow of what was heaven- in the heavenlies. The heavenly tabernacle that was shown to Moses and then what we created on earth was a hint or a shadow of what is in the heavens. And that's what Bezalel's name means. Aholiav literally means tent of the father. So we were building the tabernacle and so he built the tent of the father, our heavenly father. So amazing thing with those, with the names of those men. 
Also, why did they come from Judah? Why did they come? Why did one come from Dan? The rabbis say that Aholiath came from the tribe of Dan, which was one of the lesser of the tribes. And one of the things that they teach out of that and encourage others is that just like the half shekel represented the poor and the rich alike, that even if you come from humble origins, such as the tribe of Dan, that's not as well known, not as prevalent, that still you can be called and elevated to a service that does great and miraculous things. And so that we should not look down on anyone with humble origins, no matter what tribe they're from, upon what God, when he puts his wisdom and puts his spirit inside someone, what they're capable of doing regardless of where they came from. So we can be encouraged by that, um, by just looking at the man Aholiav who came from the tribe of Dan. We have the instruction here now for the Sabbath. We've now stopped all any of the instructions of what to make for the tabernacle. We've introduced the men who will make those things. And now we have the Sabbath. Why would God now teach us about the Sabbath, a day to rest? Well... I believe if we ever were told by God, if God spoke to us and said, this is what I want you to do, go and do this. Well, if we really truly believe in God, we'd be excited to do that work and we would start 24-7 doing that job until it is done. That I bet Betzalel was very excited to do these things and so when it came time to, to work, it's time to get to work and it's like morning, noon, night, can't sleep because he's thinking about what the next thing he's going to do. However, God gives us the instruction, even though I have told you, build this, work on this, do this, I still want you to rest. I still want you to take one day out of the week that you will rest. That is the day that I rest. God says, speaking to us. And that that is the day that we should still have a holy convocation, rest our bo- weary bodies, praise the Lord on that day. Then when the new week begins, continue the work. So even though God is giving us the amazing blessing of building his house, building his tabernacle, that it's a co-labor together. It's not just God making his tabernacle. It's for us together. It is a co-labor between the children of Israel and God that is making this tabernacle. God rests on the seventh day. So we should as well. It's also amazing that here we have the the prayer of the Veshamru, that it's like that this is a covenant that is for the children of Israel to keep the Sabbath, observe the Sabbath throughout their generations. It is an everlasting covenant. It does not stop. It does not end. It is a berit olam, an everlasting covenant. That word olam is the same word that we would describe infinity or the, like, say, a wedding ring that we talk we seal covenants with a ring, wedding covenants, and that, that ring represents eternity. It has no beginning, it has no end, it is olam. And so one of the things that we look at this as well is that the Sabbath is a sign of God's covenant with us. In the same way that a ring on someone's finger is a sign of a marriage covenant, Sabbath is a sign of a covenant that God has given to us. And it's amazing also that we remember this sign of the covenant. We just built the house of God and now we are reminded of the covenant we have with him in the same way that a man as he's growing and maturing and desires to take a wife and raise a family he will establish his house he will build his house he will prepare the home then he will make covenant with his bride so that they can join together in that 
home. It's, you can see the same practical pattern and parallel between God, his tabernacle being built, and him calling us his bride and us being in covenant with him in the same way that a young man would establish a home, establish a house, take a bride so that they then have a place to meet and fellowship with one another. So we have that same pattern and parallel throughout this Torah portion. Our story now shifts greatly as we go to chapter 32 of the book of Exodus and we have the sin of the golden calf. Moses delayed from coming down on the mountain and the children of Israel, some of them, were, they grew impatient. They did not know, they saw that Moses delayed from coming down the mountain. They didn't know what happened to Moses. They're at the base of the mountain. They're looking up at the mountain. The mountain was on fire with the presence of God. And so they probably looked up after 40 days or after so many days. They looked up. The mountain's still on fire. We haven't heard from Moses. We know there's no food up there. We know there's no water up there. How is this guy even still alive? We think Moses is a goner. So we turn to Aaron. And it's because Moses told the children of Israel, if you have anything that you need before, when I go up there, there is Aaron and there is Hur of the tribe of Judah, who actually was the grandfather of Bezalel. Kind of a cool story there. And so Hur and Aaron, they're in charge. While I'm gone, I'm going to go up on the mountain. Moses goes on the mountain. A bunch of time goes by. Mountain's on fire. They think, they think Moses is gone. So they go to Aaron. They go to the people and they say, come, make us gods that we may, that shall go before us. For as this Moses, the man who brought us up out of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. This is, a, I mean, we can start to see the mistake come, where this is a, a grave mistake that they make. There's so many other parallels and things that's going on. First of all, they have no patience. Patience is one of the fruits of the Spirit. We just got done talking about a man, an artisan of the tabernacle, that's filled with the Spirit of God, and it can do amazing and great things. Well, if you don't have the Spirit of God inside of you, well, then you don't have the fruits of the Spirit. So you're impatient, and you're not long-suffering, and they lacked the Spirit of God at this time, to wait and have the patience for Moses to return. They also, I love to parallel this to anybody who is looking for the return of the Messiah. We're looking for the return of Yeshua to this earth, the return of the Lord. And some of us may look to the return of the Lord and become impatient that we've miscalculated when the Lord would actually return, become, become very discouraged, and then we turn away from our faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because we predicted that the Messiah should have been here by now, but he's not here yet. Well, in the same way that Moses is a Messiah-like figure that delivered them out of Egypt, he has gone up onto the mountain, he has ascended, and we're waiting for him to return. He didn't come back when we thought he should have, so we grow impatient and we're going to worship another god. This is something, this is a trap that anyone can follow, fall into, if we believe that God should have done something by now. If our leader, if our Messiah should have done something, he should have been here by now, well, then we're going to turn to other gods. That is a grave mistake that one could make. If anyone has fallen away from the faith because they think that the Lord should have returned by now, then they make the same mistake the children of Israel did when they made the golden calf, waiting for Moses to return. So, several things going on. Aaron tells them, break off the gold earrings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters. This is where they get the gold. So this was not gold that was given of a willing heart, unlike the tabernacle. You're supposed to be, have a willing heart and give the gold willingly. No, this was created by ripping the earrings off of the people and just making it because somebody wanted to do it. And so they 
basically stole this gold to create the golden calf. So there's a great contrast here. Also, that ripping of the ears, the cutting, there was blood present at the time. This is all the symbols and symbolism of an unholy covenant. Covenants are made when there's cuts are made and altars are made. And what we have here is we're going to have an altar made to this, to this golden calf. And we're going to have a cut. We're going to tear the gold from your bodies and cause you to bleed as we make covenant with this God. This is an unholy, this is blasphemy to the nth degree of the covenant being made not prescribed by God. Also interesting here, as you look into the details, when it says they came to Aaron and they said, make us gods so that we may go before him. The Hebrew word there is Elohim. Make us Elohim. We came here, we're serving God, we're serving Elohim, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who brought us here to this mountain. Make us Elohim, something that we can see, that we can follow, and we can have some image that we follow. That's one of the other things that's interesting. And then... Aaron makes it, he molds it, and then he says, we're going to build an altar and we're going to proclaim it. said, tomorrow is a feast to yod heh vav as they're making a golden calf. This is not just following another god. This is taking something and making it to be equal with yod heh vav An even more grave mistake that is going on here. That this is what, that they made this thing and they called it God. They called it God. Other things that are going on here. One, where was Hur? Hur was assigned with, with Aaron to be the leaders. If any, they had any problems, they would go to Hur. Well, the Midrash and the rabbis say that Hur was stoned before they came to Aaron. Hur tried to stop them, stop these sons of Israel from doing it, and he died at this time. That's at least as the oral tradition goes, the stories that have been passed on for many, many years. That's what the rabbis believe had happened, and that was the fate of Hur. And so then Aaron, fearing for his life, may have acted out of these things as well. The other thing, too, when he fashioned it with an engraving tool, he fashioned the golden calf. Now, later, he's, when Moses comes back, Aaron's going to say to Moses and say, oh, I just uh, I took the gold, I threw it in the fire, and out came this golden calf. Well, we have in the same chapter, we see that Aaron lied here. He fashioned it. He, he specifically put it there. That contrasts also something else I like to say. Betzalel, given the Spirit of God, everything was designed with, with order, with purpose, with exact measurements. When Aaron is making his excuse for the creation of the golden calf, it's, oh, we threw it together. There's no order to it. There's no purpose to it. Again, contrasting the golden calf versus what God has called us to build and create. He fashioned it. The Hebrew word there is uh, yatsar which is the fascinating Hebrew word that when it seems that you fashioned it the same way that God fashioned and created the world. The Hebrew word uh, there has a yod, etzade, and a resh. It's very, very cool. The resh is the head, the yod is the hand, and in between is the sade, which sometimes literally represents a fish hook, but then figuratively represents the desire of something or to pull or to work or to do or to gather something. So this word, yatsar, when you fashion something, you take what's in your head and you cause your hand to move and pull and act. And it's the desire of the head and then the hand works. So fascinating study here on just that Hebrew word. 
It's also the same Hebrew word that is used in Genesis 6, going back to Noah again, if there's some parallels here, is that when it said that every evil inclination of man, that every imagination of man was toward evil, and that this was the reason why the sin that man had is they had this evil inclination, their imagination ran wild, to do whatever, and it was that was a sin by man. That word imagination is the same word, yatsar. So what we have here, and Aaron makes this golden calf, is we're taking all of the evil inclinations and the evil imagination of man, and we're then fashioning it into a molten, molten golden calf. So, again, interesting more parallels as to the, the evil nature of this golden calf. Also fascinating in the Hebrew word that for molded calf or molten calf, um, that Hebrew word is uh, matzecha. And that word has, is, is always used for, it's always associated with something that's negative or bad, usually. It appears in Isaiah chapter 30. At verse uh, 1. Let me go ahead and go there. We'll go into... Uh, and this is actually not one of the normal readings for the Haftorah. However, sometimes in the study of Torah, I like to call something the hidden Haftorah. It's another passage in the prophets that parallels our Torah portion here. Let me go ahead and read this. Chapter 30 of Isaiah. Starting at verse 1. The, you'll start to see the parallel here. Woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, who take counsel, but not of me, and who devise evil plans, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who walk to go down to Egypt and have not asked my advice to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, the strength of Pharaoh shall be your shame. The trust in the shadow of Egypt shall be your humiliation." Amazing parallel here when you think about the golden calf. We know the golden calf represented a god that was in Egypt. That they obviously had some sort of pattern in mind that they had when they created the golden calf. And there's been many studies, other teachers have studied exactly what gods of Egypt the children of Israel were replicating when they created the golden calf. And so it's almost like the shadow of Egypt. Egypt is no more. They've left Egypt. They're gone. Egypt's gone. They were washed away. It was in utter ruin when they left because of all the plagues. All the, the army of Pharaoh died in the Red Sea. Egypt is gone. It's no more. Why would we go back to something that was of Egypt, like some god that was there? And the shadow of Egypt is their humiliation. Woe to the rebellious children who don't have their spirit inside of them. Obviously, they're making something crazy and weird, not like what Bezalel made, but what Aaron just threw something together here. There's no spirit of God inside of them. And that phrase right there, who devise evil plans. Other translations say to cover a covering. It's kind of a strange literal translation, but that same word, masecha, that represents a golden calf, is the same word that's at that phrase, those who devise evil plans. Same word. So we have this connection and this parallel to these three verses in Isaiah that are very clearly describing the sin of the golden calf that the children of Israel committed. Let me also go to another passage here. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 12. This is where when God is being, when instructing the children of Israel when they go into the promised land, and they're to go in and they're to tear down all the high places of the, of the people that are there. And don't turn away. Their eyes will covet the gold and covet all those things. You're to dispossess them. Tear down all their sacred pillars and do all of these things. We have a warning at the end of chapter 12 of Deuteronomy that also parallels this. 
Starting at verse 29, Deuteronomy chapter 12. When the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you go to dispossess, and you displace them and dwell in their land, take heed to yourself that you are not not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed from before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, say, How did these nations serve their gods? I also will do likewise. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abomination to the Lord which he hates... They have done to their gods, for they burn even their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it, and you shall not add to it, nor take away from it. Very similar pattern here. The gods of Egypt were already gone. They were already destroyed. In the same way that this warning is given to us, the, the gods of the, of the nations are already destroyed before you. Don't inquire as to how they worshipped their gods and then try to worship me in the same way. It doesn't work that way. So in the same way that they took this golden calf, they called it Elohim. Aaron says, let's have a feast to yod heh vav in the form of this golden calf. No, there is no redeeming this sinful worship of another god and calling it worship to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It doesn't work that way. God does, he calls it an abomination. And it's the shadow of things that are already destroyed, already no more. It doesn't exist anymore, yet you're going to inquire as to how others worshipped and how others praised their gods and all these things, and then you're going to apply those same principles to how you choose to worship your God? It doesn't work that way. In the same way, I would warn anybody who talks about the pagan practices of various worship and let's just take Christmas for instance where we even though Christians know and understand all of the the pagan origins of the traditions of Christmas from the mistletoe to the Christmas tree to all of those things and then they say no 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 we're going to we're going to redeem this for the worship of of the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob it doesn't work that way if others worship their God with Asherim, with trees of praise, you can't call it a worship of yod heh vav if it was from some other nation or some other idea. It can't be redeemed for the worship of yod heh vav In the same way, we can't take a calf from Egypt and call it God, and we can't take the shadow of some other worship from some other ancient time, and, and some people that worship their gods a certain way, we can't take that and call it worship to Adonai. It does not work that way. So, here we are, the sin of the golden calf. How do we rectify this? How do we, how do we come back from this particular thing? Well, the Lord speaking to Moses here at verse 7, and he says, Go down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. I find that very funny. God says, Moses, says to Moses, your people, go look and see what they did. And I would imagine Moses was going to be, what do you mean by your people? In fact, in fact, later on, when Moses is pleading with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in fact, what he says back to God in not so many words, is that, no, God, Lord, these are not my people. These are your people. Your people that you brought. And not what I brought. I didn't bring them out of Egypt. You brought them out of Egypt. Remember the covenant you made with them. Remember these are your people. And so that is almost like a, it's almost the way in which the Lord gave Moses an in to then say, because God almost says something, dare I say, incorrect to Moses. 
God says something to Moses that says, your people have done this. But no, no, no. This, this is God's people. God chose this people. He chose them from among all the nations. But what it does is it's a something that God speaking to Moses and it almost shows the relationship that God and Moses had. And we'll see that in our Torah portion as Moses is able to plead on behalf of the children of Israel so that God would still be with them and still dwell with them. Amazing. Moses goes down from the mountain. They see that you know they have committed a great sin. Moses has a great amount of anger. He casts the stone tablets from his hand. The tablets that were made by God, that were was carved on both sides and written by the finger of God. And he breaks those tablets. And he comes down and there's a great uh, judgment that comes upon them. One of the things I saw, I read, that's very interesting about how Moses broke the tablets. This one rabbi said that he did not break the tablets in anger. He broke the tablets because he was taking responsibility for the sin of the people. And he being one of the people, that the sin of a small number of people was a sin for the entire congregation, including Moses himself. That the breaking of the tablets was actually a calculated thing that Moses did knowing this covenant has been broken and I'm not going to walk away with these tablets and say, I'm Moses, I have the covenant of God, I have him, he, he gave me these words, you can guys can go do whatever you want over there, I have the covenant with God. No, Moses didn't do that. He humbled himself and he took responsibility for the sin of the children of Israel. And that's what I believe he was doing when he broke those tablets. There's also another amazing parallel here that the uh, calf was destroyed, it was ground up, it was put into the water, and then the sons of Israel were to drink the water that was the, had the gold in it. And there's the same similar pattern here in the... Um, the law of the bitter waters, that whenever a husband was jealous of his wife, that there was a procedure where they took dust of the tabernacle and the, the temple floor, put it in water, then the accusation against her was written down, that was also put in the water, she drank the water, and then if she had a physical response to that, if her belly swelled, if she became infertile, then they would know that she had committed a sin. If that did not happen, then she was innocent. We have the same pattern here where the... the it was the tablets were broken. I like to think that the tablets that some of the broken tablets ended up in the water as well. The accusation against the the breaking of the covenant of the sons of Israel was there, as well as the dust, the dirt, the the ground up golden calf was put into the water, and then the children of Israel drank it. Then the Levites take swords, they go out amongst the children of Israel, and they kill anyone who sacrificed to the golden calf. Three thousand. Children of Israel. How did they know which children of Israel sacrificed to the golden calf? They went out amongst all of the sons of Israel. How do they know which ones sacrificed and which ones did not? I believe that the drinking of the water that had that in there, that there was a physical response. Maybe every single person that sacrificed that golden calf, their belly swelled. They, a plague came among them. It became very obvious which ones had a reaction and which ones did not. So the sons of Levi knew exactly who sacrificed to the golden calf and who to slay at that time. I believe that's one of the things that... that is specific about that and that they were cut off from the people so much so as those that were sinned that they were blotted out from the book it says that here at the end of chapter 32 that it says whoever sinned against me I will blot out from my book well you know what we don't know the names of the people that sacrificed this golden calf we don't know we don't know their names 
We know the names of Korah and Dathan and Aviram. Those guys had other rebellions. But that rebellion actually didn't compare to this one because anybody who sacrificed to this golden calf, they were, their names were blotted from this book. We don't even know who they were. What an amazing judgment upon those people that committed that sin. The rest of our portion goes on to talk about, like I said, how Moses pleaded with God that that he would still be with them and still um, go with them to the promised land. We have the 13 attributes of God where God talks about his his mercy and his grace and how long-suffering he is. And that that is amazing that God describes himself in that way. And Moses prays those same things back to God and says, if we found grace in your sight then we are a stiff-necked people, but pardon our iniquity, pardon our sin, which it says God is capable of doing. When it's all said and done, Moses' face is shining with the glory of God. I believe that's connected to Moses humbling himself amongst the sons of Israel. That he joined with them, he broke the tablets, he knew that their sin came upon them as well. He humbled himself in that way. But when it's all said and done, Moses humbled himself, took responsibility, and in turn, he was exalted. That his face showed with the glory of God and that he was exalted amongst the sons of Israel. What an amazing thing that Moses, and we can learn that those that humble themselves will be exalted. And we call Moses sometimes the most humble man in all of scripture. That a true leader takes responsibility for the sin of the whole congregation and the whole company. So we can learn those things from the humility of Moses. Like I said, what an amazing Torah portion that this is. There's so many more things that we can go into study-wise. And uh, next week we will wrap up all of the instruction to do with the tabernacle as the tabernacle itself is actually created and built. It's been commanded to be built. Now we will actually go into the details of how it is built in next week's portion. So let us go before the Lord and thank Him for a wonderful teaching this week. Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, for Your Torah portion. We thank You for Your instruction, Father, and all of the things that can encourage us in our faith, Lord. Father, I thank You for revealing them to us. That we can be encouraged, that we can learn from Moses as a leader, Lord. And that we can learn from the mistakes of our ancestors of old. And that we can learn to not make those same mistakes. We thank you, Lord, for your words and your instruction and so many patterns and parallels you give to us in other parts of Scripture that we can learn. So, Father, I pray that those who heard this message is blessed by it, Lord. That is not my words, Lord, but it is yours alone. And may you receive all the glory for all the wonderful blessings and instruction and encouragement that you give to us from your word. So we give you all the honor, the glory, and the praise, Lord. And it's in your Son, Yeshua, that we pray all of these things. Amen. The blessing after the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher natan lanu Torah temet V'chai elam natah betocheinu Baruch atah Adonai nonten ha-Torah Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the Torah of truth and has planted everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. If you would, uh, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. This New Testament portion, which is paralleled with Kitese uh, from the Torah portion. Uh, Just a quick reminder, Kitese uh, dealt with a number of items, uh, one of which was the sin of the golden calf. And uh, we've talked about before about the sequencing of because the sin of the golden calf is completely out of sequence in the Exodus story as it's laid out 
We actually know the event was much earlier. Apparently, Moses and the Lord didn't want to make that so much as a narrative in the Torah about that, but did want to address the issues of, of it. So it's in the sequence the way it is given to us. Uh, so I'm going to focus in a little bit on this sin of the golden calf because Paul has something very specific to teach us about eating meat, sacrificed idols, and about the whole business of dealing with idols and how do we, how do we deal with that. Uh, so let me take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning at verse 4. We're going to read through the end of the chapter. And let me go ahead and read that to you, and then we'll have our teaching. At Beginning at verse 4. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there's no such thing as an idol in the world, and there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord, Yeshua the Messiah, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care, lest this liberty of yours somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake the Messiah died. And thus, by sinning against the brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, your sin is against the Messiah. Therefore, if food causes your brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again that I might not cause my brother to stumble. Now, what is interesting about this passage and the idea of eating meat sacrificed to idols is it's kind of the flip side of what we saw in the Torah. Now, in the Torah, when the children of Israel decided to rise up and play and to create the golden calf and to sacrifice to it, there were some very specific things that are cited for us that they did in conjunction with that that angered the Lord greatly and angered Moses greatly. And thus we get this very negative response. Not the least of which is after they had made the golden calf, after they had sacrificed to it, after they were playing with the thing, that they stole some of the glory of the God of Israel. They stole the testimony of the God of Israel, and they gave attribution of it to the idol. They said that this calf is the God that brought them out of Egypt. Now, I want to remind everybody that the very first words that God ever spoke from the Ten Commandments is he introduced himself as, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And we, of course, know that that, that set of words is the call of the commandment to believe in him. 
uh, to trust him, to recognize him as being God. So when the children of Israel sinned with the golden calf, they decided to assault the very first thing that God ever spoke from his mouth that all the men heard. They, they challenged God at the very beginning out of words out of his own mouth. Now, let me go ahead and just say this. I don't think I need to explain it a lot. But if God says something and you turn right around and you say the opposite of what God said, you do realize, of course, you're going to be in deep trouble. Uh, I defy, you know, a young son, his father, walk up to him and tell him directly, specifically something he's going to do or not do. And the son then stand up and directly counter exactly what his father has said to his face. Uh, I doubt it will go well with the son. It's just the way the world works. There's, in the case of the Golden Idol, there was no attempt to even be deceptive about this. In fact, in the story, the ancient story, we believe the man Hur, who was the friend of Aaron, who stood and held Moses' arms up when they were doing their first battle in the wilderness, that Hur stood up when the children of Israel began to misbehave, and they slaughtered him summarily. They just slew him. No negotiation, no talk. Slew him. They murdered him right in front of everybody. So there's no deception whatsoever. And this may be part of the reason and the rationale that Aaron then capitulated and decided to go along with the children of Israel in making the calf. When Moses came back and asked Aaron, how did they get so far out of control? How in the world could, could this have happened? He doesn't really give the rationale about how her was murdered. Um, it's kind of implied. Uh, but his defense is a little goofy to me. I've always enjoyed this part where he says, well, the gold went in the fire and, and, and this is what came out of the fire. The, this calf came out of the fire on its own. You know. Well, you know, it may be, and I'm not saying for sure this is, it may be that that is what really happened. There could have been that many demons involved that they could have, in fact, done that. Uh, it wasn't a God associated with Egypt. The children of Israel already knew about the false gods of Egypt. This golden calf was actually one of the gods of the Sumerians, of the Sumerian regions that they were entering into, uh, the Canaanite gods and those sort of things. So there was some newness to that, and that may be why some of that happened the way it did. Now, I'm not making excuses for them getting involved with idols, but clearly the Torah portion takes a very negative, adverse position toward idolatry. It's an affront to God. Now, what Paul does in this portion here when he's talking about, he doesn't talk so much about an affront to God as much as he talks about an affront to other brethren. The sin, the harm you do to others. Um, and he starts off by saying, look, let, let's be honest here. You know, we believe in God and there is no such thing as an idol. You know, there's only one God. Uh, there is all these other suggestions of these different gods, and so we, we know it's all mythology. 
it's all nonsense, it's uh, ancient stuff, but there's no truth to it. We know there's demons in the world, but we know there's no false gods. We know there's lots of things trying to rise up and try to be like God, to imitate God, and steal away our attentions and, and affections and so forth for that. And that they too imitate things our God has called us to do. Come to the table, have table fellowship, to eat of the feasts, you know, to participate. And that's part of the communal relationship that comes with the faith. In your own families, uh, families that are able to sit at the dinner table together and consume the evening meal together, their supper uh, together. These are families that tend to be very cohesive. However, if you have a family where so-and-so eats here and so-and-so eats at that time and so-and-so eats at another time, and you don't have this common table for where we all are seated and fellowship with one another, those families tend to be fragmented. The relationships uh, between parents and children, between siblings, they don't, they're not the same as, as for that which, where the whole family sits together. When I was a younger man, uh, it, the custom was everybody was at home and they all took the seat at the same table and the, the food was served. And in my particular case, you know, you didn't go through a buffet line. What you got on your plate is what you got to eat. And oh, by the way, you eat all of it. Um, and mom was the one that dished it up and set the right portions and so forth. And maybe there might be something a little left over, but but uh, that was rare. It was pretty much things were set. And it was also set and understood there was a certain behavior at the table. Like in the case my grandmother taught me, no elbows on the table. Uh, I I'm never have really quite understood, but apparently when you're sitting with a bunch of people and you see some guy with his elbows up on the table and so forth, he doesn't look respectful. And oh, by the way, when you get your elbows up on the table, you have a tendency to knock glasses over and make messes. And, and so I think part of the reason why the kids had to keep their elbows off the table is keep their hands down off the table so they don't make messes. Um, but it had to do with respect. It had to do with the table that you're sitting at belongs to someone, and you should be respectful of that person, whether it be grandma or grandpa or whether it be your parents, uh, going to a friend's house. Be respectful of the table. Well, the whole concept of altars, of sacrifices being brought to the Lord, it has the exact same thing. It's table fellowship with the Lord. Now, in the same way, let me just go ahead and throw this out. In the same way that we hear a lot of Christians and Christian teachers suggesting Ah, we don't we don't want uh, sacrifices. We we don't need altars. Uh, you know, we we have Jesus. I would like to remind everybody that as a result of not having table fellowship with the Lord, that's the reason why your spiritual life is so screwed up, and you can't get things straight. And it's no different than families we see today. We have no table fellowship as a family together. And the reason why we're all in shock, because every kid looks like a bottle rocket going off instead of doing that which is reasonable. And families are dysfunctional, disoriented, and, and a whole bunch of them di divorced. Somehow or another, that table did not get set up right. 
And we didn't have the nurturing that's supposed to take place. I remember there was a set routine at the table. You know, each family member was asked about their day and the schoolwork and and everybody indicated concern and we all heard it together. We all were bonded together. We heard the same counsel uh, at the table and and uh, we had a sense of uh, shared joy and sometimes it was a sense of shared disappointment uh, that might take place. But this was the center of focus of the family in the house. It was at this table. That's the reason why people congregate in the kitchen, because it's close to the table. Um, But not so much today. You know, culturally today, um, there's a lot of nice dining tables that get very little use. uh, Because the family's off doing other kinds of things. So Paul is talking about this whole business spiritually about Well, when you do come and you sit at a table, when you come and you have table fellowship, are you having table fellowship with a fellow believer or with an idolater? So the first thing he talks about, he says, look, he says, we all know there's no such thing as titles. Those pieces of metal that have been molded or that piece of wood that's been carved or that stone that's been chiseled or whatever the dumb plastic object is, uh, we know it's nothing. We know it's not a God, and we know that people referring to it as a God, we know it's foolishness, and that it's not going to do a bit of good. Um, The prophets describe idols as they have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. They have mouths, but they don't speak. You know, and they appear to have faces, but they don't pay attention to you. And yet people have this tendency to want to do that. They want an object in front of them, something that they can fixate themselves onto and talk to and believe that somehow there's going to be something good will happen for them in their faith. Now, he goes on to say, he says, with the fact that there is no real God, there is no, the the reality is the freedom we have in the Lord, we can basically, if it's kosher, if it's clean, we can eat anything we want. You know, as long as it's within the commandments of what's called and defined as food. And if we're sitting at the table with a known idolater, uh, we can eat with them. Um, But here's the one kicker. The kicker is this. What if a weaker person, a weaker believer, sees you doing that? Because we are our brother's keepers. We, how we walk and how we testify, it has an impact on other believers. If you are out in the community and um, uh, your community is, is a, a spiritual community in which that there's great love and companionship and, and community and fellowship, and all of a sudden you see one of your brethren, let's say he's one of the teachers, and you see him go into a very dishonorable place to participate. I'll tell you what happens. Uh, the brethren, they go, oh, my goodness, uh, so-and-so's going into that, that place over there. I can't, I can't believe he's going in there. I mean, you know, what does that mean? Well, let me tell you what it does. Your respect collapses in their eyes. Your ability to speak into their heart, their life, to be an encouragement in the faith to them, just almost vanishes 
So now you're in fellowship and you don't realize you have no standing with that person anymore. So of what benefit are you at that point uh, to them? All they're going to do is remember how they saw you in a very compromised way that was contrary to the faith. Well, this is the point of what Paul's trying to get to. If you're eating some meat, sacrificed idols, and the person who was hosting said it was sacrificed to idols, although you can eat it and it doesn't hurt you one bit. The problem is if, you're, if the word gets out that you did it, and if you're witnessed and seen as doing it, you destroy yourself and you destroy other people that were impacted by it, especially weaker brethren. Weaker brethren, you're supposed to be caring for, you're supposed to be encouraging uh, in the faith. Now, at the same time I say this, I want to make sure we also say something else. Uh, lots of religious people in this world love to make giant lists of do's and don'ts. Okay? And it's kind of a favorite hobby uh, for people to sit down. And, and let me tell you how they make these lists. They take themselves as the standard. Okay, me. What do I like? What I don't like? And... And then they say, okay, well, you can't do this because I don't do that. Uh, you can't do this. I don't do that. You, you can't do this. I can't. Oh, you can do this because that's what I do do. And then they take that list and they lay it over the top and begin to judge other people's behavior. Well, needless to say, you know, God has a lot to say about that. Judge not lest you be judged by the same measure. Now, I will be very honest. I will confess to you that, and, and I have a personal example about that. There is something that I personally am very adverse to. I do not like Brussels sprouts. They're sour. They make me gag. And I don't care how much garlic butter you put on them. And if I see you eating them, um, that list is that's on the list of I'm not sure that I, I really want to spend a lot of time with you because if you're going to eat those things around me, I'm 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 going to have to do something else. Now that's a silly example, but I will be honest with you: I don't like Brussels sprouts, and I get uncomfortable with people eating Brussels sprouts around me. I, I have to kind of look away if, if I watch them. God forbid, take a whole one of those and pop it in their mouth. It's like, you know. Now, that's a funny example. But I think you understand my point. There's a whole array of other activities that one fellow might think, well, that's okay. I'm a believer. I have the freedom to do that. And somebody else would say, oh, oh, you can't do that. And what we have to do is we have to avoid those issues. I would say to the person that's making the do's and don'ts list, you better drop your do's and don'ts list. Uh, no one is going to be brought to your judgment, and you are not going to be the person determining the eternal reward or judgment on any person. In fact, you don't even get to do it for yourself. Only God is going to be the only one who's going to render judgment. And he's going to render judgment not only based on what happened, but what was in that person's heart. So that's the reason why I know.
that Brussels sprouts probably are not sin. Because I think they actually love them, and I think God sees that he loves them, and that's how, how he takes care of that, even though I, I don't deal with those. And um, I hate them. And to date, God has never called me up and said, what do you think about people who eat Brussels sprouts? And, and what should I do with them? And I don't think he'll be calling me up on it. And uh, again, the same thing is true of you. If you see an activity in the congregation and you don't think it's appropriate, uh, you better be very careful. Be very careful about judging your brethren, cursing your brethren, speaking ill of your brethren. I would remind you of the wonderful promise that we all have in the faith, being of the heritage of Abraham, I will bless those that bless thee, I will curse those that curse thee. By the way, that that applies to all of us as brethren, one with another. Let me uh, just take this uh, just a bit further. You know, in the course of the Messianic Movement, I've been in it for a few years, we've seen the whole range of um, social interaction of, of, um, you know, I hate to say it, but some couples have gotten divorced. And there's always this weird thing that happens if, if there's this couple gets divorced and this couple get divorced, and then all of a sudden this guy or gal meets this guy or gal, and all of a sudden something wonderful happens for them, and they start up a relationship. There's this idea, well, my gosh, we, we can't have that happening uh, kind of thing. And, um, uh, and people lay on their opinion about what's supposed to be happening there. And, and in my congregation in years past, we've had struggles with this. And it's a little bit like they're accusing each other of eating meat sacrificed to idols. I mean, the, the same contempt uh, that, you know, you're abandoning the faith, you know, you're doing your gross sin, all kinds of stuff. I would caution you guys, be very, very careful with rendering those kinds of judgments upon one another first and foremost and paul's trying to make the same point here there's only one god there is no such thing as a real idol right so we have a certain freedom in the lord by the way in each individual you're going to give an account to the lord for your life you're not going to have to give an account to the lord and to somebody else so you are free from the condemnation of others it's really their problem to get that straightened out in their heart um, there go i except by the mercy of god and oh by the way god is able to raise up any person who has fallen and there is no such thing he's fallen so far he can't possibly get up god can raise him up god can raise you up if you're dead now we would all agree so you can't get up if you're dead he can raise people up that are dead and I mean, even spiritually dead, he can still raise them up. So what our attention and focus should be on is God's mercies, God's grace. And anytime we see something that's happening with others that kind of wrinkles our soul, we need to look back to ourselves and say, thank you, Lord, that somehow you've kind of kept me out of that trouble. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and mercy you've given to me. Help me to walk humbly you know, before you. And, and not not make stumbling mistakes. Now, what Paul's going to go ahead and end up here, he's now going to turn it just a little bit back to, again, the 
shall we say, the adult in the room. Um, we have the same rule. If, if we have, um, say, a group of uh, teens, and there's a group of us adults, and we know teens are interested in certain kinds of fun activities, and we adults, especially married adults, we're already acquainted with all these fun kind of activities. And, and so, like, for example, let me tell you a rule that we have at Camp Yeshua, our youth camp. We have adult staff that come out, and they're married. We do not permit the adult staff to kiss each other in front of the kids. No public displays of affection. And the reason is because that's not the attention that the kids should be paying attention to. That's not what the lessons are at camp. The lessons at camp are spiritual lessons to teach them to walk uprightly before the Lord. They don't need to be distracted by the, quote, freedom of some adults or people who are in an intimate relationship and distracting that. Let me tell you why. Because they'll want to participate amongst themselves, too, which then really gets out of control. And you have to put the foot down. We've learned a lot of lessons in youth camp about and I've referred back to this very passage that we have here. Let us be careful to not cause the weaker brother to stumble. Let us make sure we're staying focused on what is the lesson, what it is that we're supposed to be doing, and let's be kindly uh, to those that are the weaker so that they can be taught, strengthened, and so forth. There will be a time come when they'll find their spouse and they'll get to kiss all they want, but not here at youth camp. That's not what this is for. Well, in the faith, there are times when we're training and raising people up. It is not time to flaunt our freedom it is time to just enjoy the Lord and learn. Um, and we always should be exercising, the, the adult in the room, so to speak, should be exercising wisdom to make sure that those that we don't see and send misleading signals uh, to the weaker brethren. Be mindful of caring for and loving uh, all of the brethren that are in our fellowship and making sure they're taken care of. Uh, as well. Amen. Now this portion isn't that long, uh, but it does go along with the subject of idolatry and how do we treat it and other kinds of behaviors. So with this, let join me in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this Sabbath. Thank you for the ancient stories. Lord, help us to learn from the mistakes of the past. Let us be wise in our behaviors today, especially amongst our own brethren. Thank you for the many freedoms that you have granted to us. Thank you, Lord, that you're the one and only God, and we don't have to worry about any other gods. And, Lord, but we do ask that we'd be circumspect, that we'd be honoring, and that we'd be caring and loving for our other brethren in all of our behaviors and all of our speech. We ask this in Yeshua's name. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. And now we leave you with the ironic blessing.
bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Shalom. Shabbat shalom. When the sun has set on a Friday night, bringing peace into your home. Families will gather all around singing Shabbat Shalom, everybody sing. Shalom. 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 a gift from God to put a smile upon your face. 